Our scripture reading today comes from John's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 4 through 11. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This series of messages that we've been in all summer is about the person and work of Jesus. But I want to be careful because you cannot talk about the person and work of Jesus and ignore God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Now, as we come to the text today and as we look particularly at the idea of the enduring presence of Jesus, we need to figure out how we can understand and experience that. And in order to understand and experience the enduring presence of Jesus, we need to see specifically what Jesus says about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So here's how we're going to look at it today. First, the presence of Jesus. Second, our two advocates. And third, our experience of his love. So first, the presence of Jesus. Second, our two advocates. And third, our experience of his love. So first, let's talk just about the presence of Jesus. Now, let me set this up. Coming out of John's gospel, let me set this up. It's the night before Jesus was crucified, and he's spending some time with his disciples, and he's teaching them about what's going to happen and how they're going to be called to live and how they're supposed to love one another and what they're going to end up doing. And he drops a bit of a bomb on them in the midst of that conversation. And he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, naturally, that troubles his disciples because they've got all their hope wrapped up in him and what he is doing, and they obviously do not want to be without him. Look at the text again that you just heard read. John chapter 16, second half of verse 4 says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I've said these things to you, sorrows filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Do you ever just straight up disagree with Jesus? Now, let me be clear. If you just disagree with Jesus, one of two things has happened. One, you're wrong. Or two, you have understood or misunderstood the significance of what he's getting at. This is something that I've heard a lot as a pastor, and I certainly felt it myself when I first came to Christ when I was 19 years old. Uh, If I'm honest, it took me a long time to recognize that in this, I was both wrong and I had misunderstood the significance of what he was getting at. But what am I supposed to think when he says that it's better, that it's to my advantage that he goes away? I'm sure I'm not the only person who has thought or maybe even said, I wish I was with him in his earthly ministry. Or maybe the original disciples, man, they got to hang out with Jesus in person, around the table, along the road. They got to sit at his feet, listen to him teach. That's the good stuff. I used to think that. How is it to my advantage that Jesus goes away? You might now be thinking, wait a second, are we not talking about the presence of Jesus? It sounds like you're talking about the absence of Jesus. Are we talking about his presence or his absence? The answer is yes, 
In some way, we're talking about both here. When Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away, we, we hear that in a spatial absence kind of way. But it's only because we don't understand it. When Jesus says he's going to go, uh, scholar Bruce Milne says, this is not so much a spatial movement as a spiritual exaltation. It's not so much a spatial movement as a spiritual exaltation. So what Jesus is talking about here is his departure from them as he heads to the cross and to death and to burial and into the resurrection and the ascension and how he then makes a way for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. He's got to go. See, the life and the death and the crucifixion, right? The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, they don't all mean that he's gone. They mean that he's no longer limited to this fixed point on the space-time continuum. When we sit here in 2020 in the city of Vancouver and we think, oh, it would have been great to walk with Jesus and to have been one of the original group of his disciples that he called, it's a fine thought, but really we've got no less access to Jesus than they did. In fact, if we trust what he is saying here is true, this is better. See, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father is not a limitation on his ability to do what he was doing before. It means that by his Holy Spirit, he is able to do all that he was doing before without being limited to a singular location. He is present with you by his Holy Spirit, right where you're sitting watching this video right now. He is present with you right now, scattered all over the city. So don't disagree with Jesus when he says that it is to your advantage that I go away. Just understand what he means. It's not a spatial absence as much as a spiritual exaltation. It's not a limitation on what he is doing in his incarnation, but it's actually a magnification of all of that ministry on a global scale. And he does this through the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at John chapter 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, Jesus is not limited now by time and space because he's alive, enthroned at the right hand of God the Father where he rules and reigns over all. This is a bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's valuable for our thinking. Leslie Newbegin said, What belongs to one time and place is always slipping from our grasp. It recedes farther and farther into the past, and it is therefore always surrounded by sadness, the sadness of transience, the sadness that hangs over the home of a great man where small memorials of his particular being, his chair, his slippers, his spectacles, are lovingly and sadly cherished by generations of his disciples. The disciples of Jesus have no need of such memorials. Their master does not belong to the past. They have with them the living spirit who is the spirit of the father and who is also the spirit of Jesus. The spirit whose presence is the foretaste of the coming glory. Therefore, they do not look back, but upward and forward. Therefore, they do not look back, but upward and forward. In Jesus, we do not find a religious leader who flew the coop and cannot be reached. 
We do not find a spiritual teacher who abandoned his disciples or a gravestone that we make a pilgrimage to every once in a while, looking back on what he has done. No, in Jesus, we have a Lord and Savior who has made a way for us to be with him now and forevermore, who has not done his work in a way that we need to look over our shoulders at what he has accomplished as though the best stuff is all in the past. No, we actually have Jesus, in Jesus, a king who is drawing us forward where he is, present with us, doing all of the work that he has yet promised to do. So we don't look back, we look up and we look forward because that's where he's at work. Jesus is present with us. So first, we do see the presence of Jesus. Secondly, let's look at our two advocates. Again, it's the night before Jesus is crucified. He's with his disciples. He's teaching them about life and what he's calling them to do. And a little bit earlier in the conversation, he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he keeps going. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. If you skip forward a couple of chapters within the same conversation that's happening on that same Thursday night before what we celebrate is Good Friday, you get back into our text again. Again, John chapter 16, the second part of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In both John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, we see that Jesus is promising the arrival of the capital H, helper. It's the Holy Spirit. But notice that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit as another helper. If you look at John 14, He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you're using, you'll see it translated as comforter or counselor or like in our passage, in our translation, helper. Sometimes you'll even see it translated as advocate. The Greek noun behind this word here, helper, the Greek noun behind that is used only five times in the New Testament. Four of them are here in John chapter 13, 14, or pardon me, 14, 15, and 16. And then one usage of this term is in 1 John chapter 2, talking about Jesus himself. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, Christ City, we need an advocate And the first advocate we have is Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus as your advocate, you'll never understand what he's saying here about the Holy Spirit as another advocate. See, understanding what's all wrapped up in this word, this title, whether it be comforter or counselor or helper or advocate, understanding what's all wrapped up here is the key to understanding Jesus' atoning work for us upon the cross and the advocacy work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. 
The Holy Spirit, as our second helper or our second advocate, is only applying what Jesus has already accomplished as our first and primary advocate. Again, 1 John 2 says we've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And you need him. It doesn't matter how polished you feel your moral resume is, how deserving you think you are of his love or forgiveness or mercy or grace. We are all in need of salvation. We all require Jesus' advocacy on our behalf, in our place. See, the Bible teaches this, and the conscience of every human being agrees. We have all sinned. We have all done things that are displeasing to God, and there is no one who is innocent. Now, you might not believe in an objective standard of right or wrong, and I've would say that I've yet to meet a serious person who doesn't believe in right or wrong to some degree. The issue is, if you believe in right or wrong, you need to have someone or something that defines rightness or wrongness. And if there's a right or wrong to believe in, then you need to be willing to agree with yourself that you've not always done what is right, and sometimes you've done what is wrong. And the Bible calls that sin, and it separates us from God. We need a solution for that separation. The solution is Jesus, our advocate. He's the one who paid the penalty for our sin, and he is the only way by which that penalty may be lifted from us. He is the only one who can forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, our helper and our advocate, is to point us to this truth. See, the work of the Holy Spirit continues the work of Jesus, continues to shine light into the darkness in exposing our need of a Savior. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Again, John chapter 16, verse 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus said the Helper, the Holy Spirit, would come and bring light to the darkness. Awareness to sin and what righteousness looks like and the judgment that is to come. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. See, we have two advocates. The work of our advocate, the Holy Spirit, reveals or sheds light on the work of our advocate, Jesus. Leslie Newbegin again said, The work of the Spirit does not lead past or beyond or away from Jesus. So first, we see that Jesus is present with us. But second, we see that we have two advocates. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is continuing the advocacy work of Jesus, continuing the ministry of Jesus, in and through us. Third, we have to look at how we experience his love. We must look at our experience of his love. What do I mean by this? Well, when Jesus told them, where I am going, you cannot come, we see that the disciples were filled with sorrow. 
But look at what it says after in John chapter 16, a little further down in the passage in verse 19. It says, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Their sorrow is going to be turned to joy when they finally understand why it was better for them that Jesus had to go. Dane Ortland said, The Spirit causes us to actually feel Christ's heart for us. The Spirit takes what we read in the Bible and believe on paper about Jesus' heart and moves it from theory to reality, from doctrine to experience. And so what he is saying here is that the Holy Spirit takes what we cognitively believe to be true about Jesus and then applies it to our hearts in a way that we feel it. Romans 5.5 tells us this. It says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do we understand that? How do we understand that then? If God's Love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. How can we comprehend? Interestingly, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit, capital S Spirit, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. It says that we might understand. Now, somewhere along the line in the Western world, we reduced understanding to a, a kind of like a mere intellectual apprehension of what's going on. We reduced it to a thing that we think, not a thing that we feel. It's not a holistic comprehension. It's a, a cerebral comprehension. But that's not what this passage is saying. Jesus is present with us by the Holy Spirit. We have not one but two advocates. And we who follow Jesus have received the Holy Spirit. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But we don't just know the love of Jesus and the advocacy of Jesus and the presence of Jesus in some kind of head knowledge type way. Actually, we experience it. We know it experientially. We understand the love of God in an experiential way, kind of like you understand when you are outside in the sun and you turn your face toward the heavens and you can feel the warmth of the sun on your face. You don't just have to know that the sun is warm, you can feel it. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, helping us to feel God's love toward us. This passage is saying that the Spirit has been given to us in order that we might know way down deep, that we might know the endless grace of the heart of God. See, Jesus is present with us. He himself is our advocate at the right hand of God. He has sent an advocate in the Holy Spirit who reveals to us and reminds us of the enduring love of God that we might experience the fullness of that love. And here's what happens. Here's what happens when we are captivated by all of that. We recognize that we've been given the Holy Spirit that we might join in what Jesus is still doing in the world. He's present with us. 
We have an advocate in Christ at the right hand of the Father and an advocate in the Holy Spirit, our comforter, our helper. And we can sense and feel his love. We don't build our lives on the experiential side of things, but to be in union with Christ, in relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus, is to, on some level, experience that love. Let me pray. Father, we ask you, in our own weakness and in our own confusion at times, that you would move upon us and reveal your love to us once again. I pray now, come Holy Spirit, make us aware of your love. Crack the hardest heart, mend the most broken heart, strengthen the most encouraged heart that it might overflow into being encouragement to others. We ask you that you would do a wondrous work in our city. We pray your will be done in Vancouver as it is in heaven. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.